0: Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap featuring Lance Roberts. And what a week it's been. Lance, how you doing, buddy? Uh, hanging in there. It's been, uh, you know, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. That's that's my title for the week. That's your theme for the week? Okay, mine was <laughs> going to be April is the cruelest month. So <laughs> they're pretty copacetic. So, exactly. um, you know, wh- why don't we dive right in, Um why don't you just, anywhere you want to start, but certainly this week was a bit of a whipsaw. We closed yeah. lower, maybe not as, lower as much lower as it fe- feels because we came down a tremendous amount from yesterday's highs, but, but set the scene for us here.
1: So yeah, it's been a very interesting week. On Monday, we opened down pretty sharply on Monday morning, then rallied back all day into positive territory. Tuesday, we kind of flop around break even more or less. Wednesday... You know, we have this very, you know, this big sell off in the markets, everybody getting worried. We retest those March lows. Then on Thursday, the markets go screaming higher. We have a 3% day, basically on the NASDAQ and, and, you know, kind of a bull mentality, short squeeze back in the markets. And then on Friday, we give it all back up again. And it's really been this kind of volatile week all week long. And no matter what you did this week, you probably wound up on the wrong side of the trade somewhere. So, you know. It, it's just this is those these are those type of markets that are extremely difficult to trade because, again, from one day to the next. You know, we talked about last week that, you know, I, I think we're oversold enough to have a really kind of decent short term tradable bottom. But we weren't able to actually trade at all this week because, you know, the days that we were thinking about adding a little exposure from a trading standpoint, the next day, the market would completely do the opposite. And, and we couldn't get one day to follow another day where you had some positive price action, in the markets to kind of confirm that you've got a tradable rally to work with. So, you know, we just basically sat flat on our hands all week and just really kind of watched this market ebb and flow. Again, now, so a couple of important things here. One, it does feel terrible. and And it was a very bad week on the markets. But, you know, really, when we look back at the week, we weren't down all that much relative to what it feels like on Friday. When you're down 3% of the day, we were just basically giving up all the gains from yesterday. But importantly, you know, we take a look, we've had f- basically four negative months in a row. That's a that's a fairly rare occurrence going back to 1900 in the indexes. That may have happened roughly about 20 times in total going back to, to 1900. So where you have these kind of four negative months in a row, that sets that, that market up for very negative sentiment, very oversold conditions to where you have that propensity to have a bounce. And the reason I'm tell- I've been talking about you know the potential for a bounce here over the last couple of weeks, and we haven't been able to get one yet, is importantly, know this is where investors tend to make the most mistakes you know we talk we talk a lot about investors tend to sell low and they buy high and we actually saw that this past week there was a big surge in puts on monday right before the market rallied and you know so this is you know investors tend to get offside because of emotions and what's important here is that we we you know we're fairly confident that we're going to get a bounce in the next you know 3 weeks, 4 weeks, 5 weeks whenever it is you're going to get a fairly tradable bounce and and as we've been saying on our radio show all week and kind of in our written missives on our website is to use that bounce to rebalance portfolios reduce risk if you haven't liked the market action this year it's because you've got too, too much risk in your portfolio if you've got a lot of the art type stocks it's been a tough year for you. Um, you know, if you're along a lot of commodity stocks, those have held up better. But again, it's all about asset allocation, but it's also about managing risk. And what's important here is, is to not make emotional mistakes by allowing market volatility to dictate your trading. And, and this is where we tend to get, you know, kind of offsides and positions. You know, a good example of this is we sold Amazon several several weeks back because we were worried about, first quarter GDP growth and a slowdown in consumer spending. And that's what showed up in their earnings report. Now, you know, look, their earnings weren't great, but I'm not sure it's worth 15% off the stock price in one day. I mean, this is still a company that, that, you know, is is dominant in its space. And while it looks like today that, you know, Amazon is dead, you don't want to own it, there's going to be a buying opportunity in Amazon You know, somewhere. I just don't know where that price is. But this is that opportunity where you start looking for companies that go on sale. And I'm not—I'm not saying that Amazon's on sale today. They're still kind of overvalued. But I'm using an example because it was just such a big drawdown for one day. But Facebook—I hate Facebook. We talked about this on the show before. Just from their entire structure, the way they're set up, the, the whole disinformation process that they push. you know, We, we can go through all the personal political biases with Facebook, but that stock is down 47% from its peak. The valuation on that company is becoming much more compelling. And so this is where we've got to set aside some of those motions and say, look, is this company going to zero or not? See, that's the first question. And there's a lot of companies that we can make the case for, Carvana is a good example of a company that could potentially go to zero. They have a, they have a debt issue that is out right now. And the, the, the group that bought the debt have a make-whole um, covenant in that bond. And basically, if Carvana defaults on that bond, the company that bought the bond owns Carvana. So, you know, that's a company you don't want to be invested in. That has the potential to go to zero. There's a lot of other companies out there, Apple, Microsoft, Google, in that kind of, in that fang space that's getting hit now, these generals are finally kind of getting their licks. That are not going to go to zero. They're still dominant in their space, but we could see them trading at much, at, at much better valuation. So this is that opportunity to have. that's why we've been sitting on cash now for most of this year, waiting for that opportunity to try to buy stuff a lot cheaper. And we're getting there. We're just not there yet. I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, though.
0: Sorry. No, 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 no. It's actually, I think, super useful in sort of explaining the action that's happening this week and putting it into the right context. Um, Just a little bit of additional context. Um, You mentioned that in the equity markets, relatively rare to see the first four months of the the year down the way they are here. Uh, The bond market had its worst start to the year in over 40 years. Mm -hmm. So we're getting this sort of, you know, both barrels of the shotgun here for investors, you know, stocks and bonds off to, you know, pretty horrible start for the year. You know, Um, and and
1: real quick, Adam, don't don't jump off of that because that's that's a really interesting point. I was doing an interview today with Charles Payne on Fox Business. And right before I came on, he showed a chart of the number of times that both the bond market and the stock market have had as bad of years as they are right now. And those, there's only been three other times in history. One of those was 2009. The other two were back in the 70s. It is a very big rarity that you have both bonds and stocks selling off in such an environment and again you know if, if you take a look at the equivalency of where we're selling off in both bonds and stocks and, and and Adam we talked about the bond market and the fact that you've had one of the largest drawdowns in the bond markets in recorded history you know that is you know opportunistic levels for buying assets at some point point. and again you know we're you know we're convinced and again uh, with the first quarter gdp report we've now got kind of all the tailwinds now for a potentially a a more disinflationary push later on this year. And with the Fed trying to hike rates and and tighten monetary policy even more, you know, my whole thesis has been that the Fed is not going to be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect. And I think that first quarter GDP report just kind of cemented that process in. So that's going to make bonds much more attractive later on this year. But again, People don't want to own them. They, you know, it's like bonds are going to zero, not gonna own them. You know, don't want to own stocks, they're all going to zero. What are you gonna own?
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and sorry, let me just interject here. You've referenced the GDP print. The yeah. GDP print came in. So Lance, last week, I think we were talking about, you know, the latest GDP now numbers. And they were plugged at like 1.3% is what the what they were expecting last week. Well, the official print came in earlier this week at negative 1.4%. Right. Uh, so when you talk about it, kind of putting additional pressure on the Fed to maybe have to pivot at some point, you know, yeah, a negative GDP print is right. a big deal.
1: And by the way, you know, immediately after that report came out, everybody was like, well, don't pay attention to it. It was all the trade deficit, right? Is that uh, we had more imports and we had exports. And that's because of Russia and the other stuff. That, that's that's a very true statement, but I wouldn't discount that a whole lot because the next kind of leg in the table to fall is going to be consumer spending. Higher inflation, higher cost, disposable incomes have gone negative, real wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Uh, if you ha- didn't happen to see it today, labor costs came in at 1.4%. So what's going to happen here is that corporations and, and Adam, you and I have talked about the, the differences between the producer price index and the consumer price index and that uh, producers aren't able to pass all of those costs along to consumers. So that's going to start impeding profit margins. We saw that in, in earnings reports coming out this week, even Apple talking about a challenging quarter coming ahead that weight on Apple stock today, but we've heard that same kind of conversation across And one thing that Adam, you and I have talked about numerous times is that the earnings estimates for companies are still way too high. So we're about to have a large drawdown in those earnings estimates as they start to kind of realign with weaker economic growth. So just because it was a trade deficit inventory issue in the first quarter, what's going to start to lag over into the second and third quarter is going to be weaker consumer spending as they begin to tap out on the credit. But importantly, you know, we're coming off a year where we have 5.5% GDP growth. And you know, when you start out the year at negative 1.4, you're looking at a year, even if we can print 2.5% for the rest of this year, we're talking about a 1.5% GDP growth for the whole year. Right. So you're going to have markedly slower economic growth just because of what happened in the first quarter.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's assuming everything goes right from here. And the way this exactly. year started, you know, that's a tough assumption. Um, real quick uh, to the points that Lance was making about how the consumer is is we're expecting you know weaker consumer spending going forward. I did a video uh, a little over a week ago called "The Consumer Is in Deep Trouble." I'll put up a, a, a put up a thumb to it here. You can click on and go watch it. It's only a 12 minute video, but it it, it it's a very concise walkthrough. Of, of a lot of the data that Lance was briefly mentioning there, so if you're interested in that, go watch that video, because I do think it's it's prescient about what's going to be coming down the pike the way that Lance has been saying here. Um, all right, Lance, just back to your earlier points there. Um, so two things I want to kind of lean on, given given what's happened here, is um, uh, yeah, you, you you talk about uh, like you you mentioned that the uh, you know bunch of people put on puts on Monday only to get zorched right as the the market <laughs> jumped here. Um, Here's, here's my theory or my thesis, and please poke holes in it if you disagree. Um, everybody was, it was easy to be a genius, essentially, for the past 10, 12 years, right? With, with the Fed behind your back and all that you know, stimulus coming into the markets, um, asset prices just had this massive tailwind against them for you know, pretty much up until the beginning of this year. And so it was easy for everybody to feel smart. It was easy for everybody to get the trade right because, for the most part, all trades won. Right? Um, we've now removed that that major support, that probably primary support, to what was going on in markets. Right? The Fed is now you know stopping, and it's not going to get on the tightening. Cost of capital is going up. We've we've gone through the whole parade of horribles here in the past. Um, and so I think what we are going to get into is is a new era, or maybe it's back to how just investing without somebody pulling the strings in the background operates, is where the crowd is generally wrong right right the conventional wisdom is generally wrong and that's you know th- what investing is is looking at the current data and saying you know what i think there's some mispricing over here there's a company that's worth more than than the current stock price suggests it should be and i'm going to invest in that right or or there's mm-hmm. one that's too overvalued i'm going to short that right so i think we are kind of going back to that so i just want to try to flip that switch on on in people's mind which is the herd has been right. And it's it's paid to follow the herd and the CNBC cheerleaders and all that stuff for the past decade. It very, very well may not pay out going forward in this new era we're in. What do you think?
1: No, I, I think that's a fair statement because you know, two things, you know, that investors have been taught. And I've written articles about this on our website. If you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and just blog, you know, and up in the search bar the top, just type in Pavlov. Um, because I've written several articles about Pavlov's experiments with dogs. You know, you ring the bell, and the dog salivates because he thinks he's going to get fed. And this has really been the case of what the Federal Reserve has done to investors over the last decade. They ring the bell of QE. Investors run in and buy stocks. And as long as the Fed's doing QE, don't fight the Fed is the mantra because stocks have nowhere to go but up. And,
0: And, And more importantly, too, buy the dip
1: and by the dip right because that's been that's that's been it oh and there is no alternative right tina that's been the other kind of mantra for all this. but this is these are all excuses for overpaying for valuation that's that's all those are and again what the fed has fostered is this massive inflation of asset prices to help you know the, you know supposedly boost consumer confidence to create economic growth and you know we've talked about this before over the course of the last uh, decade from 2009 to present, the Federal Reserve and the government at all have injected 43 trillion dollars of liquidity into the markets via HAMP, HARP, TARP, um, you know all the different bailout programs, the Federal Reserve's QE, uh, you know the 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 checks to households. Lump it all in there, 43 trillion dollars. Now, for 43 trillion dollars, what did we get in terms of cumulative? GDP growth during that time frame, $4.3 trillion. So, you know, you're looking at spending roughly, you know, $10, $11 of government debt funded money to get $1 worth of economic growth. And that's just not sustainable in any world. You know, we talked a little bit last week about the currency devaluation in Japan and what's going on, the dollar surging here. This is Japan's, you know, kind of you know, uh, kind of coming home. So to speak, for a long time, John Malden um, has been saying that Japan is a window and search uh, a windshield and search or sorry, is a bug and work in search of a windshield. And, you know, and I think Japan has finally gotten there. The, the, The JGB can't come off of zero. They can't have higher interest rates because of their debt. They can't run higher rates of inflation because of their debt. Then, and, and as a consequence, they have very low rates of economic growth and they're having to continually buy assets in the markets just trying to keep things afloat. But again, that's all they're doing is just keeping things afloat. They're not making things any better. You take a look at the, the young people living in Japan and their economic status is terrible. You know, you think it's bad here, you know, and I've gotten to laugh here because. You know, we've talked about this before, Adam, that, you know, the, the average person in America makes about $30,000 a year, kind of on average, the average median income is about 50. But if you're making $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income worldwide. People in Japan would love to make $30,000 a year, they would be ecstatic, they could move out of the one bedroom apartment they're sharing with 12 people, you know, that's, you know, there's a huge differential between the wealth that's been generated in the US versus other countries. And we've taken that for granted. and we We've leveraged all that with debt, and the problem with all this debt that we've leveraged up is that now the bill is coming due, unfortunately, economically speaking. So every time rates go up, it's going to create an economic slowdown, exactly what we saw in the first quarter, exactly what we're going to see the rest of this year. Rates can't go up much. If the Fed hikes rates too much, they're going to cause a credit issue. And this is just the culmination of just a decade of this massive monetary experiment that has now gone awry. And, and to your point, you know, can the Fed come in and ring the QE bell? They will. Later this year, we're going to be back to doing QE. I don't know if it's going to be in August or in September or in January of next year, but we'll be doing QE all over again. We'll be bailing out assets. The Fed will be buying whatever they're buying. But it's going to require an even bigger lift than it was last time. It's gonna require more government debt issuance than it did last time. It's gonna require more checks to households than last time. And again, we can kick the can down the road a bit, but every time we stop these processes, we're gonna be right back to where we are now with markets starting to stumble, the economy running towards recession very quickly. And the question is, is, at some point, when does that monetary intervention become ineffective? In other words, the markets just say, I don't care if you're doing it. I'm still going to sell off. And, and again, that's that's ultimately going to be the question. I don't have the answer for it, but that's where we're headed to. Japan is there. The question will be, when do we get there?
0: Yeah, and, and if I could just flag um, something from the conversation I just had the other day with Bill Fleckenstein, because it is a bit of a point of difference with you, um, Lance, um, where Bill thinks that... Um, uh, if the fed pivots, uh, he doesn't see yields going down. He sees them going up because he thinks that's going to be the bond market. Basically the fed basically losing the bond market's confidence. The bond market's going to say, you know what, you guys don't know how to control this inflation. You guys are going to run this, this train fully off the rails. If you you know, continue with this, you know, continued easing and sort of the way that you're saying, you know, yeah. they'll do it, but it's, it's going to have a bad ending. Right. So he sort of thinks that, uh um, or doesn't sort of think he does think that if uh, if the Fed comes out and pivots, uh, it's gonna lose the bond market. And at least on the on, on the far end of the curve, uh rates are gonna get away from the Fed. You know, I don't it, know, it, but it's just yeah, gonna be interesting it, to see.
1: <laughs> it could be the case. History says that's not gonna happen. And the reason is, and, and again, the reason is ultimately when we go back to the the basic nut of how financial markets operate, money has to go somewhere. Money for investors, pension funds, et cetera, they can't hold cash. So the money has to go somewhere. And so if it's coming out of equities, ultimately it winds up in bonds. And even, even though despite you know, bonds have struggled a little bit this week, they've actually been catching a bid all week long and, and have actually been holding up very well relative to the rest of the market. But we're actually seeing money flows turning positive into bonds because money's starting to hide in fixed income because there's the, basically when I'm trying to find someplace to shield my assets against the market I think is going to go down, I'm going to use the U.S. Treasury. It's, it's the go-to for hedging. It's where dollars go, the reserve currencies go. And again, as, as, as we begin to see weaker global economic growth, it really doesn't matter about the Fed markets. You know, The rest of the world doesn't really care. When you're running a sovereign fund or when you've got a massive pension or whatever, or massive set of reserves and you need to shield it, against the downturn uh, economically in your country money's going to flow to the US treasury so again you know you know I, I hear what Bill Fleckenstein says and I certainly don't disagree with him because he's probably way smarter than I am but I'm just you know historically speaking we look at we're looking at money flows where does money rotate within an economy and within markets and money can't go to cash
2: yeah. so
0: it's got to go somewhere all right. Well, a couple of things. And, and one Let's you know, you, you are uh, the experts I talked to, you were in the majority view on what you think is going to happen. So we'll, we'll see what's happening, but I did find it interesting that, no. even though he expects yields to, to basically do the opposite of what you think they'll do when the Fed intervenes, you both think that the Fed intervening is going to set up basically an unsustainable, you know? Yeah. That, road, I, that, I, that, I, that I agree with. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but this topic of, um, you know, when 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 the investors in the world get get scared, they rush to, to into treasuries, um, and, and that we're beginning to see right now a little bit of that fear trade creep in, um, because you know markets have been off to such a rocky start this year, and this was you know the past couple of weeks have been really bruising, um, especially if you're a traditional fanged investor, right? As we talked right. about earlier, so Lance, I want to do something a little bit different uh, in this week's video, and I want to bring in. John Penn from your organization. He's the guy that if somebody fills out the form that we mentioned, folks can go fill out and go have a free consultation with your firm. He's the guy that they actually get to sit down and have a nice long discussion with. Um, so I wanted folks to quickly get a sense for who John was, just so they could put a face to a name. Um, and John, maybe we can talk real quickly about kind of you know what folks can expect in that initial conversation. But I also want to dig in with him, Lance, um, into this because he's talking to people on a daily basis now. You know, I'm sure. People are calling him with some questions and some concerns about these markets. And I just love to get sort of firsthand boots on the ground, you know, report yeah. from him on, and, on what folks are looking for help with and, and what kind of assistance you guys are given.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and look, you know, John and I work hand in hand where we work very close together. My job. And so in our firm, and I've talked about this before. In our firm, we have very specific jobs. Um, you know, One of the problems with most advisory firms is that the advisor is trying to wear all the hats. They're doing compliance and investing and trying to do financial planning and everything else. Our firm is very job specific. My job is to manage the portfolios. I have a team I work with. We manage the portfolios. That's all we do all day long. We publish our research every day on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. That's our job. Um, so... You know, I don't want people to think that just because they they sign up on your website and they want to talk to, to me, you know, that I'm just shoveling them off to John. That's not the case. John and I work very closely together. John can sit down. He has the time to spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour with somebody to go through their financial situation, answer all of their questions. But when he's talking about our investment strategy and our portfolio, basically, he's just talking about About what we're doing, because again, we have a very, very close relationship from that front. And so, you know, what he when he's talking about that, he's basically talking for me. But again, I speak to a lot of these people. When people come on, they say, "Hey, you know, I really want to talk with Lance." And John pulls me into phone calls, and I get on with people all the time to talk about their portfolios and kind of what the attitudes are and what the outlooks are. Because again, it's very concerning right now. I think one thing that John needs to talk about um you know when he's on with you is the, the fact we've got a lot of people that are calling us up and going i don't want to be invested <laughs> you know so i just want to be out of the market and that's one of the big issues here
2: hi john how are you good how are you guys good to see you all
0: great good to see you john well look we just gave you a great big build up here um but thanks so much for for taking a break for a moment from all your client calls and coming sure. on the program here um if you could just um Give us just sort of two seconds about yourself, but then maybe just sort of talk about if somebody does fill out the form, you know, after watching this video and they contact you and they sit down with you, what are the kind of things that you sort of walk through with those people? What's that experience like in a nutshell?
2: Absolutely, and so uh, you know, a great explanation about our roles and responsibilities, and how we come all together here and collaborate together as a team. Lance, so I'm I'm one of the five certified financial planners here at the firm, and so while I'm not the one that's actually doing the you know the buying and selling, we rely on Lance and his team to, to do that during the day. Um, I'm helping clients focus on some of the areas around that, you know, more some some you know broad financial planning topics, and let's figure out you know what is. You know, how much risk do they really need to take with their portfolio? Right. You know, what, what is that right allocation decision? And and just really spending some time to just really get an understanding about the client, their situation, and what is the right approach then? them, because everybody's approach is is different. So really as as I, you know, as you know, as, as we are connected to your listeners that reach out, you know, through through wealthy you know, it's really that, that conversation that I'm having with individuals or couples or families. It's it's really just more of a discovery conversation. It's just it's I'm very fortunate to, to be able to have a little peek into their life, and they're willing to share, you know, um, you know about their financial situation with me. You know, I talk a little bit about our firm and our approach and what we do, and it's just a it's just a very you know easy conversation just to get an idea of where they are with things, where do they want to go, and and what is the path that makes the most sense for them, really.
0: All right, great. And, you know, John, I've gotten to know you over the past couple of months. Um, You're a very conscientious and very sort of, you know, client-oriented kind of guy. Uh, And uh, part of me wanted just to have you on here so folks could see you and actually, you know, see that for themselves. Um, I I exist. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. As as Lance and I were saying earlier, um, my assumption certainly from the emails that I'm getting, the comments that I'm seeing on YouTube, and I think Lance is getting the same thing, you know, people are understandably kind of concerned about where markets are headed right now. Um, mm. So, you know, John, would be curious and Lance, feel free to chime in here. But, you know, what, what do you kind of say to somebody who, you know, picks up the phone, calls you and says, you know, I want to protect my wealth, but I'm I'm really worried right now. Um, and Lance, you and I were talking before we turned the recording on here. And, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about how oftentimes emotions are the investor's worst enemy. And when prices are going down, uh, people tend to not want to buy, right, understandably. Um, But of course, that's when the better values generally are at lower prices, right? And people get excited and they want to buy them when prices are raging. And that's the whole FOMO danger, right? So uh, I'm just curious, what kind of counsel are you giving those people who are calling you right now and saying, I really want to do something with my money to, to position myself to grow wealth in the long run, but I'm nervous that the markets are coming down right now?
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, just you know that's such a great question because that is a lot of the concerns that I know you know myself and my colleagues here that that we're all hearing right now, Uh, and and really my answer is that it doesn't have to be an all or none decision, right? It's you know what uh, you know is there a way where we can help them? You know what is what does that investment strategy look like? And we do not have to just deploy assets all overnight, you know, into into the market. We can. We can take our time here, depending upon what is the, the overall risk tolerance of, of that individual client. So there's, Lance has talked about how we are handling onboarding portfolios and how we're introducing cash into the market. And that resonates you know, with me and it's the same approach and I'm meeting with somebody. You know, the, the the approach to them might be different for somebody else, but it all goes back to just, you know what is the amount of risk that is really appropriate for that client? And, and a lot of it comes down to looking at some, you know, longer-term financial planning too. In other words, let me have a really good understanding of, of where that person or family is now and where they want to go. And over time, you know, what is that rate of return that they need to earn over time for that plan to be successful? And success success looks different from one person to the next. That could be, hey, John, we just don't want to outlive our assets. right? Or it could be, Hey, we want to pass this wealth on to future generations or, or future charities. So, but at the end of the day, here's where they are now. Here's where they want to go. And what is that rate of return that they need to earn over time for that to be successful? And that we can kind of back in to say, well, then really just at the end of the day, how much risk do you really need to take?
0: All right. Great, great answer, John. Lance, I'm going to let you chime in here. But before you do, you know, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, what I love about your firm is you you just put. Every resource towards servicing the client portfolio. I got to say, you got to take a tiny bit of those resources, and you got to give John something better than a dial-up connection here, buddy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's the, he's a. This is what he gets from working from home. We have a high-speed internet connection at the office <laughs> where he's supposed to be right now. <laughs> but it is I'm a breaking up. Is it that bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, no. Look, John's absolutely right. Look, and the biggest problem, and like I said, you know, when markets are coming, kind of we feel like they're coming unglued right now. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's really it's really easy to fall into that very bearish mentality. It's like, oh, my gosh, the world's coming to an end and there's all these bad things out there that are going to happen and look, that is certainly a possibility. I am not saying that the markets are, are not going to go down 30, 40, 50%. They certainly could do that. That is historically we have seen that happen before. There's no reason to say that it couldn't happen again in the future. The trick is, is understanding the risk of that actually happening. And you know, there's a big difference, you know, between what's going on right now and what's gone on in previous previous bear markets. And we've already seen a lot of devastation across the, the, the board. And, and, and I did this in our newsletter last weekend. I laid out a listing of stocks that are all down 30, 40, 50, 60, 70%. And historically, you don't see that kind of, of devastation outside of a bear market. But you look at the market, you know, we're down 11.5% for the year-ish, And, you know, everybody feels like that. It's, you know, the end of the world here. And and you have to. And again, it's important. And look, I'm not discounting what's going on the market. So don't take me wrong at this point. But we've also got to remember, we just came off 120 percent advance from the March 2020 lows because of all that liquidity. So it's not surprising that because that liquidity is now coming out of the market, that stocks are going to have a little bit of trouble here. Right, and where we're getting the real damage is in those, in all those meme stocks, and you know, and and it's very fascinating to me right now to watch what's going on with Robinhood. Uh, you know, that's the the trading app that all the millennials were flocking to, and they were the YOLO retail traders. You know, you only live once, and you got to buy all these stocks, and they're all going to the moon, rocket ship, rocket ship, rocket ship. And, you know, we, we, you and I have talked about this before, written articles on it talking about this always ends the same way. And, you know, we saw this back in 1999, all the young investors at that point, E-Trade was kind of the online trading platform and all the young retail traders, the old boomers don't get it. You know, Warren Buffett was like driving dead's old Pontiac. And surprisingly enough, Warren Buffett's kicking everybody's ass right now. So, you know. It's just that move back to normality. And what we're seeing come out of the market is basically the old saying that a man with experience meets a man with money. The man with money leaves with experience. The man with experience leaves with the money. That's what's happening in the market. That's all that's happening in the market right now. So the important thing, this is what John and I work on, you know, consistently with clients is making sure that we are the ones on that experience side that we're capturing and have the ability to capture, you know, that money as it becomes available. Because there's a lot of opportunities being developed here, but we've got to be willing to step in and start buying those. We may not be at the bottom yet, but we want to be there somewhere between getting to the bottom or coming out of the bottom. We want to have those assets deployed. So that's where we can actually make some money
0: okay great great point and I think maybe we're opening the door on today's rant and I want to just open it a crack <laughs> oh, and, 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 and we'll, we'll get into it once we let John head on out here but um, uh, it's sort of on the term of the of the malinvestment you know that 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 all that intervention all that can kicking that we've been doing we've talked about for many years yeah. uh, has built up here and you know you're sort of talking about it or one of the ways in which you were just talking about it is know the YOLO crowd right so we we have I fear we're creating a lost generation of investors or or specifically a lost generation that does not know how to invest right so we we've taken the millennials and the gen z and we basically said we're not going to give you any return for saving right so Mm -hmm. there's there's no incentive to save we've forced you to basically become speculators and so understandably they went and speculated in the hottest biggest lottery tickets they could find and initially develop the muscles of like, oh, the more money I put into GameStop or Dogecoin or whatever, you know, I make money, right? So that's how they've learned to quote unquote invest. And as you know, you were just saying, we know how that story ends, and we're beginning to sort of see, yeah. you know, the the last chapter of that, the third act. Um, and so we're going to end up having, you know, some millennials here that are going to be in their early forties that have never really known or learned the rules of true investing. So. I, if, that's you, if you want to join that rant with me, great. Let's, let's, let's no, put no, it save the side. it
1: because yeah, we're going to get all over that because we were going to throw the fire movement right into the middle of that whole thing
0: too. Okay. Excellent. Yes. Let's do that. Um, but where I want to go with it and bring John back in here is something that's weighing increasingly heavy, heavily on me. And it's why I did that, that consumers in trouble video that I talked about earlier, um, is, you know, it's, it's regular people that become the collateral damage of all this malinvestment, right? Because as it unwinds, you know, it has to be purged from the system. Either the bad debts get defaulted upon, or you know, the currency gets inflated away, or wh- whatever. But usually, you know, it ends in slower economic growth, like we were talking about. And you know, the issue, the repercussions of that is that people get laid off, right? right. And so my fear is that I do think we're he- we are heading towards recession, and I think that we are going the probability is is not low that we're going to be going through a period where people who have been accustomed to a a 10 year stretch that we've just had of sort of artificially extended prosperity is going to morph into having to pay the piper where, you know, people are going to have a lot less opportunity than they've had and they're probably going to lose as they've just done this year, you know, parts of their retirement savings. And then they're going to be losing, some percentage will be losing their income or at least, you know, the potential income earning, uh, the potential earning power they have right now. And, and that to me, you know, it, weigh, it weighs heavily on me. And so um, I am sure that a lot of people who are viewing feel this same anxiety in their guts. And that's probably something that they're talking about when they call you, John, where they say, look, can, can you help me not be collateral damage to what I think is going to happen here? And John, I see you nodding as I'm saying this. So I just want to give you a chance to chime in on this.
2: Yeah, every everybody's situation is is unique, and that is a concern that that I hear um, every day. Uh, just about you know what what does the path forward? What does the future look like? And how can how can we protect ourselves from you know catastrophic loss? You know, we you know, we're... It,
0: it, it, It's hard to interrupt. I want you to keep going, but if you can, in your answer, talk to you, how can you as a financial advisor work with people to help help them answer this question?
2: Yeah and a lot of it boils down to at the end of the day just how much risk do they really need to take right what is you know what is their personal situation you know, it, you know what is the right ratio of them for you know to stock investments to, to bond investments you know how much are they how much are they able to save and put away into their retirement plans and what is the better retirement plan for them is it is it pre-tax 401k's or is it you know contributing after-tax dollars to the Roth is it better to pay some taxes now versus who knows what tax base will be in the future. so it's really a combination of all of those things and you know and what is the amount of money that they do need to keep in cash in savings? I know it's not earning anything right now. I know your real return is negative, but it's nice to have a cushion uh, set off to the side where no matter what happens you you can you can pull from that if need be if, if, if somebody in their family loses their job or you have a reduction in income. There's there's plenty, there's a cash bucket there that you can pull from. And what is the right amount? Let's look at their expenses and figure that out. And let's set that aside first, perhaps before we even start an investment strategy. So it's a little bit of a combination of everything. Great. And, and John, I'm just going to repeat a little bit of
0: that just because you were breaking up a little bit. I want to make sure folks caught what you said, but it, it sounds like you said you're saying, hey, we've actually got a process here, even a model, if you will. And what we do is we have a a very information-oriented intake with somebody to get all their information and their goals and their risk tolerance and all that type of stuff. And then we have, we basically start doing a lot of sensitivity analysis. Okay, well, what, if, what if we dial this up, dial this down? What if you decide you need to retire earlier? What if this costs more than you're expecting? That type of stuff. Okay, you're nodding as I'm saying this. Perfect. All right, I see you smirking, so I'm going to let you chime in here.
1: Well, no, I want to I add one thing here too, because John brings up a great point. I'm about to mention a four-letter word to investing, that people automatically dismiss. And there is a large contingent of individuals that really need to consider this four letter word. It's called an annuity. And the immediately, like I said, as soon as you mention the word annuity, there's people who go, Oh, no, no, no I'm not doing an annuity. The annuities get a bad. Is that a
0: four-letter word? Because someone's going to swear if they
1: hear it? It, it. No, it's just it's just the way people treat it because okay. it's just okay. it's it's what's been adopted in the industry. And look, and it deserves the reputation that it gets because there's a whole group. And look, I'm going to throw John right in the middle of this bucket because there's a whole group of CFPs out there that say they're financial planners and all they sell are annuities and they sell it as a one-size-fits-all project product and it's not. And but annuities can serve a very valuable component for somebody who is a very risk averse b need some growth in their money and c need a guaranteed payout over time in order to not starve in retirement so we, uh, what John does he looks a lot at you know post retirement income. And, you you know, there's a lot, there's a tremendous swath of America that is solely dependent on social security for their income and retirement. That's it. That's all they're going to have. And, you know, they can't afford to invest capital into the markets because if they lose a big chunk of it, they're not going to make it through retirement. And so there's a whole group of individuals that have, you know, say less than $250,000 saved up. And, And again, I'm not pitching an annuity. I'm not an insurance salesman. I'm just, you know, that's, you know, you can do your own homework.
0: Yeah, you're using an example here I, of an it, instrument that might make sense. Exactly.
1: Look, every instrument in the world, life insurance, annuities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, they're all tools in a toolbox. And, you know, we can drive a nail all day long with a screwdriver. It's just a lot easier with a hammer. Uh, so, you know, if we use the right tool for the job, we tend to get things done. But there's annuities out right now that, you know, I was just looking at one. I have a, a large client that I'm working with right now. He's got an estate planning issue. He's got some other stuff that we're working on. Um, but he also had some, some, some risk Some because of his business. He has potential litigation risk. And annuities are judgment-proof. They grow tax-deferred. They're judgment-proof. So there's a a way to protect his assets. But this, what we were looking at was one that that basically has no downside risk. If the market goes down 50%, your return is zero. If the markets go up one year, you're going to be capped at about 7% growth. So it's averaged about about 7% over the last two decades, growing tax deferred. Now it's not, you know, look, there's years that certainly the market's going to outperform it. But if you can't afford to lose capital and you need a guaranteed payout in retirement, as an example, I'm just using this as an example, you know, that's a tool you should consider. And, you know, there's there's some good opportunities to blend that with your investment portfolio, with your stock and bond portfolio, with your real estate, to hedge risk, to also create some other opportunities uh, for prosperity and retirement. But again, you know, we just tend to kind of throw stuff out of hand because we've heard bad things about it, but we really need to do a lot more research. And that's what John does really well. He goes through all of those opportunities and says, look, here's what it is. This is what the rules are. This is how to apply it. If it doesn't work for you, that's great. You you don't need it if it doesn't work for you. But if you do have that need, and we talk to a lot of individuals where they're barely going to get by in retirement with their current savings rate, this is something worth considering, you know, at least for a portion of that allocation.
0: All right. Great. Thanks. All right. um, There's several more things that I want to get to here left in the video. So John, I know you've got another client call coming up in just a couple of minutes. So we'll we'll free you to do that. Um, Real quick, let you say anything you might want to say in parting, but thanks so much for coming on here. I wanted folks to be able to see you, get to meet you. Um, Let's do it again soon, actually, too, when we just get you a little bit of a clearer connection so folks can see your handsome face there. But thanks so much for coming on, John. Thanks. Really
2: appreciate it. Thank you,
0: guys. All right. Now, Lance, let's get to the part of uh, the show where you tell us what trades you've made. And I've been following them online. I'm not sure if you've made all of the trades this past week, well, which might have been the right thing to do. So
1: well, that's what I said. I guess when we first started out, I was talking about you know the volatility of the market. And you know, we've been trying to set up an opportunity to actually add some exposure to the portfolio, but just have not gotten that opportunity this week. And again, we're, you know, look, there are some things that are going on right now that you very rarely see in the markets. We have investor sentiment at the lowest level in like 30 years. Um, We have investor positioning uh, really kind of across the board, very underweight equities. That is at levels that are normally consistent with bear market bottoms, not you know, the beginning of a bear market. So there's so much negativity built up into the market that there is a, and again, I wanna be clear, I'm not saying we're about to have the next great leg of the bull market here, but we've had four negative months in a row. That's that's now, have there been periods in history where we've had five months in a row that are negative? Yes. Has there been periods in history where we have six months in a row negative? Yes. Has there ever been a period where we've had seven months in a row that have been negative? No. And so the point is, is that markets don't just go down. And the, the point here is that as investors, you know, we're looking for two, two opportunities here. One, a tradable rally that we can make a little bit of money with. And two, a tradable rally that we can then rebalance risk in our portfolio. Lighten up portfolio. a little bit. Yeah. yeah, lighten up a little bit, shift some positions around. And again, if I'm right, now here's, here's another thing for you. If I'm right, and that we're going to move, and and the first quarter GDP print was not just an anomaly, it was actually a, a, a warning sign. And we're moving into a disinflationary, deflationary environment, slower economic growth, lower rates of inflation over the course of the next 12 months. What performs better in that environment? Small caps, mid caps, international emerging markets really underperform in that environment because the global economy is slowing faster than the U.S. economy. The U.S. dollar and bonds tend to do better because since those foreign economies are slowing more than U.S., those reserve currencies flow into the U.S. treasury and the U.S. dollar. So that's been giving support. And that's why the dollar has been doing so well. As of late. And, and also what's interesting is, is the fact that the dollar has been so strong and commodities are still holding up here. Generally, there's an inverse correlation between the dollar and commodities because we trade commodities and dollars. It's making it more expensive on the rest of the world. Um, but the other side of this is also is that large cap growth does better than large cap value in that environment and in fact so large cap value does well it's generally positive in a deflationary environment but large cap growth does a lot better and that's what's been getting beat to death lately it's yeah, been large, large cap growth. Is, side. Is,
0: is that because people are sort of trying to outswim the shark where they see yeah. economic growth slowing so all right get me in something that's going to grow faster than the slowing economy
1: well what they're looking for is companies can actually grow earnings in a slower environment Right. And so that's the typically yeah. that tends to be more the the smarter way to growth. say what
0: I just said. But yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they're just looking for companies that have a, an ability to grow, grow earnings. Look, and, and this is one of the key factors when we run when we build our portfolio model. All the positions that we own are companies that we call earnings certain. And they have a very steady trend of earnings. One of the reasons we sold Amazon is because we were concerned and we could have been we there was a huge risk that we would be wrong on amazon and they would come out and kill earnings be up you know 40 percent um but we were concerned that between what we were seeing in the economic data the reversion and disposable personal incomes that there was going to be an impact to amazon's revenue stream exactly what happened and you know, so we moved out of that position early. We're still long Apple. We're so, and Apple had great earnings. Uh, got hit a little bit today, a because of the market, but also uh, b their their outlook for the next quarter was weak just because of production issues. I think that's a you know that's something that will get resolved. But they they continue to print money, and the most important thing is is stock buybacks. So you know, the the more that company I look, you, you and I had a huge rant about the illegality of stock buybacks, and, and I should say the immorality of stock buybacks, we went through all that, but let's not forget that stock buybacks have accounted for almost 100% of the net asset buying in the markets over the last five years. So just because you hate the sharks, doesn't mean you can't swim with the sharks. And right. you,
0: you, you, know, you, you, you go to war with the army you have, you invest for the market you have. Exactly.
1: exactly. And, and that's, and so, yeah, so we, we look for those earnings certain, we look for buybacks, we look for dividends, and that's really what constructs are kind of the backbone of the portfolio for right now.
0: Okay, so um, I'm just going to ask about TLT for one minute because mm-hmm. we get asked about it all the time now because we don't about it so much. Um, TLT looks like it was, well, I think you said it hung in there well for the week. It was yeah. fairly flat, which I think given the kind of week it could have been for bonds, we're probably all saying, phew. Um, yeah. I guess my question for you is, Have has your outlook changed at all? I'm, I'm going to guess it hasn't, but I'll give you a chance to react to yeah. that. Uh, and then secondly, you, know, you were talking at one point a few weeks back about how the market was um, Over, I, I want to say maybe it looked over. It looked short-term overbought, but you were you were saying if it can stay up here, uh, it's it's going to work off the overbought nature and maybe poise itself to to rise again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is is there a potential worry that TLT could do the inverse of that, which it get? It's been super oversold, as you've said. You know, multiple standard deviations are yep. oversold. But if it lingers here for for another month or two. Could you start getting a little nervous that uh, it's worked off the oversold part, and maybe could go down again?
1: Yeah. So so look, as as with all things in the markets, right? There's there's two components to positions. One is you know our short-term thesis of you know what's going on, and then there's the long-term thesis, and those are two very different things. Um, you know, with the markets as an example, and this, let's start with that. So this was about three weeks ago. The markets have had come down to where we are now, right? We were touching these marks lows. Markets were very oversold. And we said, look, we're looking for a tradable rally here. We got that um, on that rally. We reduced our exposure to some of the we'd added some stocks at the lows. We sold them as, as the market ran up. And then that to your point, we were kind of gyrating up and down along that 50-day moving average. And really kind of holding support, that's where we said, look, if we can hang in here long enough to work off that overbought condition, we can have another shot at potentially making a move higher in April or May, because we're still in the seasonally strong period of the year. Well, that didn't happen, obviously. And when we broke that 50-day moving average and broke that support, that immediately took us right back to the, the March lows, which is something we talked about in our daily commentary early this week. So that's where we are now. Now, same thing can happen in bonds but there's a little bit of a difference between where bonds are and stocks. Where bonds are, and again, that's a function of rates. And stocks can move up or down, and they have an impact on consumer psychology, right? I don't want to spend money because I'm losing too much in my portfolio. Okay, that's one thing. The problem with bonds are, is that that's a function of rates, debt, and leverage. So if Interest rates are going to go higher from here, pushing bonds lower. We're going to have to contend with the fact that higher rates are going to have even a bigger impact on economic growth. So at some point, rates hit that that buckle point to where you create a credit related event. You get defaults, you get no housing sales, you get, you know, a, a reversion and in, in, in debt markets somewhere, you know, but that's just the rates have a very big impact <clears throat> On the overall economy and and the speed at which rates have risen is one of the faster periods in history and every period in history where you've had a very big sharp spike in rates on a year over year rate of change basis, you've had some type of recession economic event or crisis or bear market so um, you know could rates go higher from here. Absolutely. Rates could absolutely go higher from here, maybe three, maybe three and a half percent. And oh, oh my gosh, we're back to where we were in 2018 on rates. Um, you know, it's just, you know, we got to keep this stuff in perspective also. Um, you know, so yes, we could get all the way back to where 10 year Treasury rates were back in, in 2018, but the economy can't withstand rates at where they were in 2018 because debt is greater. We have more debt today than we had in 2018. We had $5 trillion of debt in 2020 so you know that alone is just another consequence that rates are going to have to play with so again yes rates could go higher here but the long-term thesis is still the same which is when we get to a recession when we get to disinflation and deflation rates will come down because there's a correlation between rates economic growth wage growth and the economy
0: all right, give me a short answer here because you got three more things and I want to keep us from being here for like two more hours because uh, I went way <laughs> long last time. Liar. Um, do you expect to be buying more of TLT anytime in the near future? Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, so right So right now we have a, what we call, so in our portfolio, we run the portfolio, we talked about position sizing before. yeah. And that's where every position portfolio has a maximum size and a minimum size, and we can overweight or underweight a position relative to the risk we're going to take. Right now, we're at what we call portfolio target weight, but we have the ability to overweight that position. So yes, at some point, we are looking for the opportunity to take our shorter inventory. So we have a lot of our bond portfolio in floating rate treasuries and shorter duration treasuries. Um, and those will be moved to the long end duration. So we'll wind up overweighting the long duration of our portfolio uh, for the capital appreciation that we'll get from follow rates.
0: Awesome. Okay. So um, I'm going to move on from that real quick. Three things I got to plow through here, folks. Um, I'm, I'm going to get to who's coming up on this channel next on our regular interview programs, because we're getting a great lineup built here. Uh, and then I want to close on the the rant uh, it might have to be a mini rant this week lance but i do want to get to that before i do i very quickly just want to highlight for those of you like me uh, who generally are always behind the curve when it comes to getting uh, the important women in your life a mother's day gift so a reminder mother's day is coming up in a week if you're watching this um and i was talking with gina love who's the uh, founder and ceo of over.com because her firm and mine share investors um, she has a really interesting concept um, she makes uh, precious uh, jewelry out of precious metals um out of, out of 24 karat precious metals. They also have a couple of 22 karat ones, but but really, it's 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 for, for for it's a dream gift for a guy like me, right? Where I like precious metals as an investment, right? That's why I'm buying them, right? Now, my wife doesn't like the fact that I'm buying gold and it's in some form that's stored somewhere that she can't appreciate. <laughs> she would much rather I buy the gold form of jewelry. Um, and so that's what Ava does is it takes precious metal or you know investment grade precious metals, makes jewelry out of them. And there are a couple of companies that have done this. I've you know, been around the block for you know 15 years or so as a precious metal investor. And the companies I've seen in the past that have done this, the jewelry kind of looks a little bit like a kindergartner made it. I mean, it, it, it's not the highest quality design. What's really cool about what Gina does is she approaches it from a design standpoint. So it's it's the kind of jewelry that, you know, most women would be very happy. In, and there's some stuff there for guys, too, uh, you know, to be seen out wearing. It's it's a real showpiece. So anyways, she has been kind enough to create a discount offer for the Wealthy on audience. Uh, she says she actually doesn't do this for many other audiences. Um, And the discount code is AUWEALTH10, all one word. Uh, I'll put that up on the screen as I say this here. Um, But if you have any interest, go check out their site. If you see anything you like, make sure you use that AUWEALTH10 discount code and you'll get 10% off. And if you do it before May 3rd, I believe they they guarantee they can get it to you for Mother's Day. And even if you do it after that, they have some expedited uh, abilities as well, Gina was telling me. But anyways, hopefully I just saved some spouses uh, from having uh, the the kind of Mother's Days that I've had too many of where (laughs) I show up looking very sheepish because I didn't get something nice enough in time. Um, All right, moving on from that, let me tell you who's coming up on this channel uh, in the next couple of weeks. So next week, we have Joe Saluzzi to talk about um, high-frequency trading algos. Uh, In my conversation this past week with Bill Fleckenstein, it came up. Fleck said, you know what? I really don't have a lot of expertise here. You should get somebody who knows this well. And I said, I know somebody who knows it well. And the response from you viewers was, yes, please get that guy on. So we're getting him on next Tuesday. Following him, we have Nicholas Gurley. We're going to talk about the housing market and go deep into the data on what the current data is telling us of where housing is headed. I then have Michael Every from Rabobank, um, who is one of the favorites of the folks that I interview on this program. Uh, So he'll be coming back on, giving us his latest. That should be great. Um, The following week, I have locked in a senior uh, researcher at the Dallas Federal Reserve who, believe it or not, just published a report about uh, a bubble in the housing market. I actually can't believe these words have have uh, been written by a current sitting Fed senior researcher. Uh, but we're going to have him come in and talk to us about the data that, he's, uh, that, that he used to put that report together. And then the last is kind of a big tease, Lance. Uh, I cannot share the name right now, but I have landed a very big Wall Street name. Um, I also get turned down from time to time. I got turned down by Sam Zell this week, unfortunately. He was very polite about it, left the door open to maybe coming on at some point in the future. But the person who said yes, is of that caliber name, so um, I'll let you all sort of twist in that tease. Uh, but that's going to be an interview happening mid-May. So just want to let you folks know we got a lot coming up in the next couple of weeks here. All right, Lance. In our last couple of minutes here, let's get back to our little rant called a mini rant. Um, but uh, you know, I, I am very concerned about um, the real-world cost of what the unwinding of all the success you know that we've we've. Uh, opined and criticized uh, from over the past couple of decades you know could likely wreak on the average household here uh, i'd love to have any closing thoughts you have on this but you also mentioned the fire movement and 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 you know i've said now several times i think the great resignation is setting us up for the even greater unretirement trend coming forward i think you're going to have a lot of these fire people which folks stands for financially independent retire early And you basically kind of, you know, you you adopt a low cost lifestyle, which I'm a fan of, uh, but it's people who are basically retiring maybe in their 30s. I mean, early in life. And uh, the problem is, I don't think they have a ton of cushion. And for the type of stuff we see coming down the road here, Lance, it could maybe force a lot of those people that made that decision to have to, you know, very unhappily try to figure out what to do in a market where there's going to be a lot less opportunities to make income. yeah,
1: Yeah, no, and it's a great point. I wrote an article about this before. Which is, you know, when you talk about this financial independence retire early movement, it it sounds great in theory, right? So these people were living, you know, rice and beans and they saved up, you know, 300 grand or whatever. So they're going to retire and they're going to rent a van. They're going to live in the van down by the river and, you know, and and live life. And they're going to retire. And that's all sounds great. Right. And it's like, man, I don't have to deal with a job. I can just, you know, sit down here by the river. I can blog and people will come read my blog about me living down by the river in my van. And, and, and that may work for some people, but here's two things that are gonna happen. First of all, this was all calculated on this idea that A, they could take this $300,000 and generate 8% every single year in the market, right? So that was gonna sustain their standard of living.
0: Yeah, very second, important point.
1: Uh, and the second thing they counted on was zero inflation. So now all of a sudden the cost of living down by the river has now gone up
0: right. through the, the, the gas for that van has just gone up by 25% in a year.
1: <laughs> Correct. And cost of food, the cost of everything else. So now all of a sudden, that impact on those, those portfolios are, are getting hit. And so now here's the real problem for the FIRE movement, also the retire early movement of, of even boomers. First of all, you just mentioned that great resignation. If you take a look at those retirement numbers, those workers are now going back to work. Um, the reason is- That's is exactly that, what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And
0: a lot of those people retired because early because my portfolio was doing great.
1: Well, not only that though, and this this is one of the misnomers also because look, I live in Houston, we have a lot of energy companies here, um, so these guys make a, a ton of money. They have all they have pensions, stock options, they have all this other kinds of stuff. We saw a lot of those people retiring. They weren't retiring because they wanted to. The company said, "Hey, Adam." Uh, you're going to retire. Okay. And we're going to pay you out very nicely to retire. Well, these guys got home and all of a sudden it's like, man, there's nothing to do. I've played all the golf I can play. I want to go back to work. I got to be useful. I got to be productive. So we're going to see a lot of that. And also, like I said earlier, those are anomalies. Those, those guys, they, you know, they're in the top 5% of income earners for the vast majority of Americans that were forced to retire because of the 2020 economic shutdown they don't have the savings to live in retirement. They're going back to work, not because they want to, but because they have to, to make ends meet. Uh, But the other problem with the fire movement, again, with these kids that, that retired early, when they come back to the labor force, they've got a big problem. They've now lost three or four or five years, however long it's been, of experience in the job market. So, what do I want to hire? Do I want to hire some guy that has been living down in the van for the last five years, or I want to hire somebody that's been able to work their way through the shutdown, kept their job because they're a good, productive employee? That's the guy I'm hiring. That's the guy I'm going to steal from some other company to come work for me, not some guy who's been living in his van. So. There's going to be a, a, a kind of a, a we awakening of this idea that, you know, this kind of retire early thing is, is not good for me financially because of not just the loss of capital, but the loss of skill sets. Now, one other thing here. There's a lot of bloggers that I read every day and some, some, some big ones, too. Right. Um, I won't mention any names, but you know who I'm talking about. These guys started blogging in 2000. 11, 12, 13. And you know, they're talking about buy and hold investing. The only way to invest is to buy and hold and blah, blah, blah. They've never seen a bear market. They've never been in an environment where you've had a real decline of 30, 40, 50% in indexes. And when that occurs, this is going to change a lot of the attitudes. And, and, and you brought up an interesting point, Adam, a few minutes ago, talking about did we change the, the mentality of investors? Yes. We did. A lot of those retail investors that were speculating with Robinhood app and their fresh $1,500 checks from the government, they're out. They've, they're out of money. They are disillusioned with the financial markets. They're done. They won't come back anytime soon. It doesn't matter if the markets go back
0: up. They'll stay out of the market. Right. That's that, not that's, new. That, that's the cat who jumps on the hot stove. He's not going right. to jump in a hot stove again. But he's not going to jump in a cold one either. Yeah,
1: exactly. But that's not new, right? We saw we saw the same thing occur after the two thousand eight two thousand nine financial crisis. We saw the same thing happen after the two thousand one and two dot com crisis. Those people left the markets after losing all their money. They never came back, and that's why I'm, I'm writing an article right now. It's talking about you know. When you take a look at the financial stats, you, you listen to CNBC and they say, well, you know, you have to invest in the markets, right? And You need to invest because that's how you build wealth and, you know, investors, blah, blah, blah. This is how you get rich, take your money, you stick it in stocks and that always goes up and you make money. If that's true, then explain to me. How after three of the most significant bull markets on record since 1980, I mean, 1980 to 2000, you had a massive bull market, 2003 to 2008, big bull market, not as big as the first one. And then you had 2009 to 2021, the, by all stretches, by all measures, the biggest bull market in U.S. history, and 80% of people don't have money to make ends meet. I mean it, it that just goes to tell you what happens to investors consistently throughout markets, and these cycles continue to wipe out investors. The only people that survive this are people that can stay the course, have a discipline, weather the ups and downs of bids you know manage that risk but not make these all in all out decisions because that's what winds up destroying wealth
0: yeah, no agreed um, and this D- discussion for a different day yeah. there, there also is a bit of the wealth inequality that's been driven by you know oh yeah well
1: yeah that's but, you, but you and I won't our, we won't disagree on that we won't
0: disagree and we don't have time to crack that one open um next week look, look, <laughs> look my 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 my, my I, I'm sorry I agree with everything you said and, and I'm I do feel for that lost generation and the fire people you know they, they retired early um, but I will say my my greatest sympathies are with I think sort of the average view of this program because they skew a little bit older, right? Mm-hmm. These are people that are are either now you know early in retirement or almost there. Right. And and my fear is is that if, if what I think could happen is is it's going to be like, you know, you're in your last couple of paces of the marathon, you're almost at the finish line, and then all of a sudden you see the finish line just move way out ahead of, of you. And I shouldn't laugh as I say that it's more gallows humor. Um so anyways, we don't have we got to wrap things up here, but yeah. we did the other week when we were on here, Lance, we asked the audience if they'd like to have uh, you bring on some of the guys from your shop who are the personal finance gurus. And, and you were, you, you just done a, um, a uh, personal finance conference uh, in the real world. And we talked about maybe you bring those guys on and sharing some of that material with the folks here. Yep. So um, the interest was very strong. Um, clearly you and I care a lot about, you know, we're talking about here today in terms of trying to help people not become roadkill and to actually be able to successfully retire so uh folks watching i will commit to working with lance to getting a date where one of these uh, weekly market recaps we bring those guys in and it's mostly dedicated to retirement planning so yep absolutely with that said folks um if you'd like to see that happen and if you're enjoying these weekly market recaps please do me a favor support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And that's always a highlight of the week doing this with you. Um, Who knows what this next week's going to bring, but whatever it does, you and I will be deconstructing it on this program next week. Thanks so much for joining me and everybody else. Thanks so much for watching.